there's no where to get in Buddhism. You're already enlightened. Everything is just the way it should be uh, because there's nowhere else to be. Like, this is just it. And it's the same with relationships. Like, if your relationship sucks, if you're with someone who's abusive or someone you constantly argue with or you have this incredible incompatibility, that's what your relationship is. Mm. And you can't change it and find your way to less suffering until you accept that that's what it is. If you're happy with the same old ways of dating, if you enjoy sucking at communication, and you have no desire to improve your romantic life, then our podcast might not be for you. But if you want some out-of-the-box ideas to deepen your current relationships, broaden your sexual horizons, develop a better understanding of yourself, or learn more about non-monogamy, then you've come to the right place. I'm Jace. I'm Emily. And I'm Dedeker. And this is the Multiamory Podcast. On this episode of the Multiamory Podcast, we're speaking with Annalisa Castaldo. She is an ordained Zen Buddhist priest um, who studies with Jules Shuzen Harris at the Soji Zen Center, uh, which is in Pennsylvania. Uh, she is also an associate professor of English at Widener University in Chester, Pennsylvania, and also also has a Master's of Education in Human Sexuality and teaches a course on non-monogamies and has been polyamorous for 11 years now. Mm -hmm. um, so wow. lots of different things going on there. But on this episode, we specifically wanted to talk about Buddhist philosophies and some of the Buddhist teachings um, and how those relate to relationships, mm -hmm. um, which is an interesting thing. I just to let you know, there's a lot of wonderful, beautiful gems of wisdom in this episode, oh, wow. yeah. if I do say so myself, so not to blow our own horn too much or to blow this person's horn too much, <laughs> no. but right. this fantastic We're her interview horn, if anything. covered a lot of ground. So we really hope that you enjoy. All right. We are here with Annalisa. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, happy to be here. Thrilled, actually. Do you do you have a title? I realize I should have asked this beforehand, oh. but do you have a fancy title? I do not have a fancy title. Uh, mm. I am a Soto Zen priest, but I'm a novice priest, which means I don't get to call myself reverend yet. I have oh, to okay. a full priest. But can you call yourself novice, Annalisa Castaldo? Yeah. Okay, okay, oh, great. Yeah. Wait, <laughs> there are reverends in Buddhism? Uh, no, that's the title that gets used in America. Um, okay. The translation from the Japanese. Oh, and what's what is it in Japanese, Dedeker? Don't don't <laughs> or either of you. Sorry, I'm no, asking no, the no. person who's fluent in Japanese. I'm not fluent in Japanese Zen. All right, touche. <laughs> okay, uh, so just to explain to our audience a little bit of how we ended up here with a Zen priest on our show. Uh, so I know we've talked a lot on the show. I've had a meditation practice for a long time. I've labeled myself as Buddhist for several years. It's definitely something that I know I wrote about a little bit in my own book. It's something that the practice of has really helped me in the way that I approach relationships and the way that I've approached non-monogamy. Um, the three of us, myself, Jason, Emily, we recently got back from a silent meditation retreat um, that was also Buddhist. And so obviously, Multiamory is not a religion podcast. We're not a Buddhism podcast. Um, but 
Annalisa, we would love your help in kind of priming our listeners specifically at looking at the things that are talked about in Zen Buddhism as practice as opposed to looking at them as religion. I know for some people it's hard to see the difference there. Well, sure. And one of the things that attracted me to Buddhism, because for a long time I identified as an atheist, actually, mm. is that it can be seen as a philosophy and not a religion. Uh, Shakyamuni, uh, the man who became the awakened one, which is what the Buddha means, it's a title that means awakened one, uh, was a man. He was a human being. He lived. He died. Um, he got a bad back. He got old. And uh, he was a teacher. And his goal was to find out uh, why people suffer and how to get beyond suffering. And he created uh, a system that he said to his followers, test this. And if it works for you, go for it. Um, of course, he said that in Sanskrit. Hmm. And, uh, and if it doesn't, that's, you know, you test it. Uh, and it's been going for 2,600 years, and it works for many people. Uh, and the goal of Buddhism is to figure out how to let go of craving, to let go of clinging to the desire for things to be other than they are. Because mm. uh, if you're a Buddhist, that's generally what you believe causes suffering, this uh discomfort, um, whether it's full-on suffering or just a kind of grumpy uh, lack of satisfaction with things, is because you want things to be different than they are. Uh, and uh, if you can let go of that and be fully present, then uh, you can reach a state of awakened uh, satisfaction with life. Uh, and there's a little more to it than that. The other two things I think are especially relevant to this particular discussion we're going to have is that, first of all, um, the Buddhists believe that there are sort of two sides to reality, the absolute and the relative. Uh, and if you want, you could think of those in terms of the relative is sort of uh, Newtonian physics and the absolute is Einsteinian physics uh, or quantum physics. And oh, they're yeah. both true at the same time, even though they contradict each other. Okay. Mm, I see. Okay. On this yeah. episode of Multiphysics, or yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And then the uh, other thing that I think is very important is the three marks of existence, which are that everything is impermanent, um, everything, uh, that there is suffering, or dukkha is the official word, and that there is no self. Um, what I mean mm. by that is that uh, Buddhists believe that there is no such thing as a soul or a individual unchanging part of you that goes on forever. Uh, we are causes and conditions. We arise when conditions are right. And then when they're not right, we stop arising and go away. Um, and we go back into sort of the general uh, absolute realm. Where does reincarnation fit into that then? Uh, so Buddhists actually don't believe in reincarnation. They believe in oh, re okay. They believe in rebirth. Okay. Which means that nothing is ever uh, dies or is born. It's just changing form all the mm. time. And so your karma um, carries forward. Uh, you Another, again, scientific way to think about it. You can see the atheist in me. Um, <laughs> sure. is, uh, is to think about it in terms of genetics. You know, you are... A good portion of you is the result of your parents' genetics and your parents' parents' genetics and so on. And that carries forward into you, even though you're not them and they're not you. Their genetics make up who you are. Mm. 
Okay. Right. Now, it's so interesting that, like you just said about, you can see the atheist in me coming out is, from my impression, is there's actually a fair number of people who identify as, quote unquote, Buddhist atheist as yes. well. The number of people find like these philosophies and these practices don't require me to necessarily to have to put faith in some kind of deity or some kind of afterlife or something like that. And I mean, do you feel like your background as an atheist means that you have more of a tendency to lean on that side of things? Or do you think that that's changed for you? Um, can I say both? Uh, <laughs> I, I, for me, it is very important that this uh, practice does not require an unquestioning faith in something I can never see or test. Um, but also my relationship to faith has actually changed over the past 10 years or so. It's not so much uh, faith in a thing out there as it is faith in myself mm-hmm. and uh, faith in being able to test thoroughly uh, an idea that I have about what will work and what won't work. And that's uh, made my life a lot easier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good segue, actually. Yeah. So when we were talking uh, before recording this, um, you had told us that you transitioned to polyamory some number of years ago and that you felt like your transition was maybe um, abnormally easy. uh, And you felt like that part of that could be because of your Zen practice. Um, And I was curious if you could elaborate on that and tell us a little bit more about that. Yes, absolutely. So it is, I'm not making this up. Uh, when Alex, you know, sat me down after over a decade of marriage and oh, wow. said, uh, you know, I think we, I have this thing I have to tell you. It's really important to me that I be able to connect to other people emotionally, sexually. I don't, you know, I've been fighting against this. I love you so much, but this is really important to me. And I sort of thought about it for a little while and I was like, okay. Wow. <laughs> Everything's um, impermanent. Go yeah. for it. <laughs> well, and that because um spending day after day meditating on the impermanence of things made it possible for me to just think, well, this is a change in our relationship. How does it actually affect me and my connection to Alex? It doesn't. Mm. Okay. Let's go forward. And so for a while I was going to stay monogamous because I didn't feel any real pull to uh, be with anyone else. And then I met my boyfriend, Nathan, and I changed my mind. And I was like, okay, things as they are. Yeah, now I'm in a different place. <laughs> uh, and um, yeah, that's, uh, that was my, I had, I've had one jealous moment in all the time we've been, I get jealous about other things, but not about relationships. Uh, the mm. one jealous moment was when Alex told me he was taking a girlfriend to see Shakespeare in the park. And I was like, Shakespeare is my life. I oh, Shakespeare. I study Shakespeare. Uh, you never go with me to Shakespeare. And he's like, sorry. You know? And I was right. like, okay, we're going. Just so, you know. Wow. I was jealous when my friend took his uh, best friend to see Hamilton. So I completely understand. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. That theater jealousy, for yeah. sure. I feel you. Yeah. So we, we might get into this. A little bit more later in the episode, but okay. I'm imagining myself as a listener at home who doesn't, doesn't meditate and doesn't, you know, doesn't identify as Buddhist or anything like that. (laughs) And they, they hear this and they're like, well, bully for you, you know, (laughs) you're, you're so enlightened and so Zen that it's a whatever, but for me it sucks and it's hard. 
this isn't helpful for me. And I was curious if you might have any thoughts about like, are there parts of this that someone could start applying to their life fairly easily, you know, kind of right away rather than having to spend, you know, become an ordained priest of, of Buddhism to, to have. No, my secret plan is for everyone to become an ordained priest. Um, Join my multi-level so there, marketing scheme of becoming yeah. a Zen priest. You must, you must come to a six-month retreat. Um, yeah. I, so I think that it's not instantaneous. It's not like you can listen to what I'm about to say and go, oh yeah, that makes sense and just have it work for you. But I do think that you, uh, you listener, uh, people who are not uh, regularly meditating, can sit with the ideas I'm going to talk about for just a little bit of time, a couple of weeks maybe. Uh, and that, from what I've seen from friends I've introduced these ideas to, can actually be enough. So the first thing hmm. to start with the really positive uh, side of things, everyone's going to die. Everything is going to change and all relationships end badly. Mm. Meaning either through <laughs> death or otherwise. Yeah. yeah every, all relationships end badly. Uh, either one of you dies or you break up. Mm -hmm. Right. And if you do actually both die at the exact same moment, probably it's through some horrible accident and your last moments are filled with terror. So accept the fact that your relationship is going to end badly and stop thinking about it. Mm. I think that a lot of fear and jealousy comes from people worrying about the end of the relationship and thinking if they put together the exact right sequence of events, magically it will never end. Right. Yeah. Like if I say the yeah. right things or do the right things. Right. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so accepting impermanence and accepting that impermanence relates to everything, including your relationship and your own body, um, means that you can focus more on the moment. You can focus more on the middle of the relationship. Is it good right now? Is it making you happy right now? If not, what do I need to change right now as opposed to dwelling in the future and mm. wrapping yourself up in anxiety? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's such a thing. We've definitely talked about that on this show before of just our tendency to always project into the future when we're going to feel a sense of peace or contentment or happiness, particularly within a relationship. I and mean, when we do it with all arenas of life, but particularly with mm -hmm. relationships when it's, you know, a, once we get married, then it'll feel better. Or once we have a kid, then it'll feel better. Or once they just finally get their act together, then it'll feel better. Or once we open mm -hmm. up or once we close or, you know, whatever it is, then I'll feel better when it's not even paying attention to like the actual present of the relationship. Yeah. And I think that that works in reverse too. I mean, I've heard you talk about, as you just said, um, the desire to think it's going to get better. I think people also dwell on it getting worse. Like, okay, mm. things are fine now. But are they going to stay that way? Like what I hear from people is all about opening up um, is or having kids or moving is, well, OK, this this might be a good thing, but will it change stuff? Mm. You know, of course, it's going to change stuff. But why worry about the changes until they're actually happening? Why not just enjoy what's going right now? So we talk about attachment just in our daily lives. And I know mm -hmm. that that's kind of a Buddhist concept as well, because we've talked about impermanence and that's a big um, thing that 
we talked about at the retreat and that I've heard, <laughs> uh, you know, in reading the books and all of mm-hmm. that and a sense of emptiness as well. So what can you say about attachment in relationships? Because I do think like things such as entitlement in our relationships and being overly attached or overly fearful or overly hopeful, um, as as we've just talked about, like, can you speak to that a little bit and just how um, kind of letting go of that attachment to things can be helpful in any type of relationship? Yes, absolutely. So the first thing I want to make clear is that the Buddhist idea of attachment is not the psychological idea of attachment theory. Um, Buddhism is not talking about detachment, but about non-attachment. So it's uh, what's about, the difference between those two? <laughs> so being detached means being cut off, and being not attached means accepting things as they are or people as they are, and not seeking to change them, hold on to them, or push them away. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. huge. Wow. So yeah, that's amazing. Um, the beautiful thing. I mean, I'm sure you've heard because everyone's heard that if you love something, let it go. If it comes back to it's yours, right? Yeah. That's non-attachment. Like, you can love someone more fully if you're not attached to them, because then you don't cling to them. You don't feel a sense of fear that if this person goes away, I will lose something. And so you're not, your brain isn't sort of constantly scanning to see if they're changing or Mm. not the way they were, or if they're upset or they're losing interest. You're just like, with the person in the moment. And uh, when you drain the fear out of it, you can have a much more authentic connection. Do you think that that's part of what it is? Attachment is just kind of fear. It's fear of the unknown, fear of getting something taken away from you. Well, in Buddhism, we talk about clinging, um, Mm. uh, that what causes suffering is clinging. And it's not desire. That's a mistake that a lot of non-Buddhists make. They think Buddhism wants to get rid of desires and for people to be uh, sort of mindless, um, desireless robots. Desire is a really great thing. And it's you know like you can't have the desire to, you can't awaken without the desire to awaken, for example. Uh. It's just not needing things to function in a particular way. Um, so it's like, uh, say you go out with your partner um, and you, you want to go to your favorite restaurant and you get there and it's closed for, you know, the owners went on vacation. If that ruins your entire evening, you were attached to eating at that restaurant. If you're yeah. like, well, that kind of sucks, but hey, pizza, you know, <laughs> um, then you're not attached and you have a perfectly good evening, even if it's not the one you originally planned. Mm. So you mentioned earlier on that these are some concepts that you've, for instance, introduced some of your friends to. Uh, so these concepts around, you know, accept that your relationships are impermanent, accept that maybe you need to be non-attached in order to actually be able to enjoy them in the moment. Um, and my question is, like, are those people still your friends? Because I found in my experience, I've just found in my experience <laughs> in also trying to share similar concepts with friends or with clients. It's it's like it's the stuff that not a lot of people really want to hear. You know, it's it's relationship advice that I think turns off a lot of people, um, maybe because it's so deeply challenging to the way that we're used to just functioning in the world. What's been your experience of that? That's very interesting. I haven't had a lot of pushback 
Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I've just chosen the people yeah. really carefully <laughs> to to share this with. Um, maybe it's because I am happy to overwhelm people with <laughs> philosophy until they just sort of say, "Okay, don't, don't hurt me anymore." <laughs> um, uh, I hmm. no, I really haven't had a lot of pushback. I, I can't say for sure people have taken the advice uh, mm. all the time. I think sometimes people listen to me and nod and, and think in the back of their heads, okay, she'll stop talking soon. <laughs> and, and then they go on with their lives. Um, but part of it might also be that Alex and I have an amazing relationship. Mm. Uh, and they can see that we've done this thing of opening up a longstanding monogamous relationship with great success and that my boyfriend Nathan and I have been together for 10 years now. Wow. 10 years in June. Uh, and that's clearly worked. And so they, maybe they're just like, well, there, she might be onto something. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause my, exper- my experience definitely with clients is I find when I'm working with clients, people tend to be very receptive to like the very practical tools of like, mm-hmm. okay, here's a meditation you can try. Here's maybe a little bit of kind of a, a mental twist that you can take on a particular thought, or here's a way to maybe self-soothe or be mindful, like when you're mm-hmm. experiencing a moment of jealousy or things like that. Um, the bigger concepts, like those things like non-attachment or impermanence, I've definitely found it's like people kind of have to end up in a context where they kind of experience it themselves you know it's like they can't quite just receive it it's like they have to go through the trial by fire and come out the other side being like oh you're right and you know and then then it's a lot easier or go to a meditation retreat (laughs) or something like that i find the non-self is the one that really freaks people out and that doesn't come up as much in relationship talk so maybe that's you know but when you try and tell people that there's nothing about them that's unique and long lasting. Um, they're like, okay, bye now. <laughs> yeah. That one is certainly challenging, especially to our kind of Western idea of like a soul that, that is infinite and, you know, yeah. maybe always has yeah. been and always will be. Yeah, for sure. Right. Definitely. I find also talking about the con like the Buddhist concept of emptiness tends to be one that, that I think there's a lot of Western pushback on. What yeah, is as that well. specifically? I don't know if we got into that, like really, breaking it down like what is specifically like the concept of emptiness uh the buddhist concept of emptiness is not nihilism it's not that nothing exists it's that nothing exists independent of everything else everything we're all one we're all one we're all interconnected um so my teacher um says uh you and i are the same but i'm not you and you're not me so, uh, which is a way of talking again about the relative and the absolute side of things. But it's um, a sort of common way of explaining it is if you show someone a bike and you say, what is it? They'll say, it's a bike. And if you disassemble the bike and you lay it out and you pick up the handlebars, you say, is this the bike? They'll say, no. Pick up a wheel. Is this the bike? No. So when you break something down, you can't find this like single inherent aspect of it that makes it the thing it is it's always everything is always dependent on everything else to be what it is Mm -hmm. and so everything is empty of a separate uh unique self right that was probably the best most concise explanation of emptiness that i've ever run across so very well done (laughs) 
Yeah, you must, yeah, you must really be practiced in this. So if I could bring it back then to kind of what you were saying about the ideas that you will share with your friends that you have found um, for the ones who have taken the time to, to think through it has been helpful. Um, you started by talking about impermanence, like the idea that your relationship's going to end badly one way or another, um, you know, so accepting that can kind of help you let go a little bit. Um, what were the other ones? So we talked about this emptiness and non-attachment versus detachment. How to mm-hmm. like how, for example, this concept of emptiness, like that no no part of you is you. You are sort of the collection of all of you together. How how does that one apply in relationships specifically? Like how has that been helpful? Um, it's really helpful because people are very attached to uh, specialness in relationships and they often tie yeah. that to exclusivity. Like mm. I know my partner loves me because I'm the only person he lives with or shares a bank account with or watches uh, Game of Thrones with mm-hmm. or calls Sweetie or, you know, whatever. Um, and to recognize that these are empty gestures and by empty I again, don't mean without meaning. I mean that they're literally empty. Like just because your partner watches games of Th- Game of Thrones with someone else or calls someone else by a pet name doesn't mean your connection to that person is changed or is lost. What it simply means is that they are connected to the rest of the world and you know, like maybe they're a huge Game of Thrones fan and they want to share it with everyone and that's okay. It mm. It's not a uh, way of defining how much they care about you. Mm. And in fact, you can't define how much someone cares about you because love is not a noun. Love is a verb. Love mm. is an action. And because everything is empty, you recreate the relationship moment by moment through your actions. That's and, great. And, and so what that means is it doesn't matter what your partner does with anyone else. I mean, it does. Obviously, if your partner like runs away and leaves you without, you know, clears out the bank account, that obviously matters. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean that, like, at some point in the past, if you'd done things differently, you would have a different result now. It just Mm. means your partner was a jackass and (laughs) well rid of them. (laughs) Interesting. Interesting. So I can just anticipate, you know, just people hearing that and being like, well, then, I mean, then what is our relationship? How can it be special? Like, what is it that's there? And I know that on the show before specifically when we've done episodes, you know, about specialness and that idea of uniqueness, you know, I know you've encouraged people to think about specialness in this very different way. That's, it sounds like it's kind of related to what you're saying, that the specialness of your relationship is made up of what's already happening in your relationship in this unique configuration, you know, these unique causes and influences and factors and conditions that are creating it in this moment, as opposed to it being about because of the fact that the two of you wear jewelry that you exchanged or, you know, yeah, like the list of things that you were saying. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and side note, all of that stuff is great. I mean, I don't want to suggest people should let go of that. Um, they should just let go of clinging to it. I mean, mm-hmm. ritual. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I go to a, a Buddhist temple where it's very heavy into the Japanese ritual and the bowing and the robes and the chanting in Japanese and all that. Um, not because that makes the practice, but just because it's uh, a thing we like to do. Most of us. Um, <laughs> To get uh, okay, I'm gonna get incredibly Buddhist here for just a second. Okay, okay. We'll strap I'm it. Try to do it in a way that's strap it. So, um, a 12th century uh, teacher named uh, Dogen, who actually founded the Zen line that I'm part of, uh, said Nirvana and Samsara are the same thing. Um, and what that means is that enlightenment and um, Samsara means sort of like unenlightened, stumbling through life, suffering. They're the exact same thing. And I think this is useful here because um, what there's no where to get in Buddhism. You're already enlightened. Everything is all just the way it should be uh, because there's nowhere else to be. Like there, this is just it. And it's the same with relationships. Like if your relationship sucks, if you're with someone who's abusive or someone you constantly argue with or you have this incredible incompatibility, that's what your relationship is. And you can't change it and find your way to less suffering until you accept that that's what it is. Hmm. Hmm. Can you? Can we just like meditate on that for a moment? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can you speak a little more on that because I think that's that's big, like, and and also a little bit hard to wrap one's mind around completely. Yeah. So it's it's trying to get at this um, paradox in Zen in Buddhism, that you're supposed to completely accept whatever is in the moment, but also be uh, aware that it's going to change because everything is impermanent uh, and that you can change things. It's Buddhism isn't about sort of passively accepting, oh, look, a child has wandered into traffic. Oh, well, things as they are. Child was doomed to die at this moment. No, you can get the child Gosh. out of the traffic, you know, but you, you, operate from a position of accepting what is present because that is what actually gives you the most freedom. Um, I don't know if this metaphor will work, but let me try. When you make a movement with your arm, if it, you have to relax your muscles first before you can use them. Hmm. Hmm. Um, you know, you can't reach for something if your arm is tense, you have to sort of relax and then put the muscles, muscles into motion. In the same way, you can't get out of a bad situation until you accept that you're in it. Whoa, and I think okay. one, of the, one of the really dangerous things people do, not just in relationships, but in general, is try to delude themselves about what's actually going on. Because they think that's what will make them happy. I can, I mean, I can 100% relate to this because I, Mm. so I was in a physically abusive relationship for a number of months and it's so strange, you know, fortunately it ended years ago, but it was the strangest thing that looking back on it, there was this huge, for me, this huge cognitive dissonance in the sense that when I was in it, I wasn't thinking about it as an abusive relationship you know, for me, I was like, no, 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 this is still a normal relationship. This is a solid relationship. Some bad things have happened, 
but this is still a solid relationship and there's still something here that's salvageable and I can change it and I can get it back on course. And it's so exactly like what you said that it wasn't until that realization actually seeped through for me, that acceptance of like, oh no, this is what this is. It wasn't until that happened that then I actually had the strength to be like, okay, then I guess I can leave. And kind of the same thing later on that when it came to figuring out my own healing and like going to therapy and tackling that, that it wasn't until there was that acceptance of, no, this was like really bad. It was, you know, it wasn't like a good relationship where there were mistakes. Like, no, this is what it was. And it wasn't until that came through that I could find my own healing. At least that's what resonates with me hearing kind of those metaphors and that application. Yeah, exactly. And um, I think one of the things that's important to recognize um, about meditation a lot of people think meditation is about relaxing and stress reduction and, and things like that and letting go of thoughts. It's actually just about, um, it's not about not having thoughts. It's about being present for whatever comes up and uh, letting go of it. And the great thing about formal meditation is that when you sit down and if you're a, a Zen Buddhist, you face a wall, <laughs> you know, you just huh. stare at a wall mm-hmm. um, for 30 minutes without moving. And so there's nowhere to hide, hmm. you know, if you are upset about something, if you spend 30 minutes not moving, um, it's going to come to you. You know, hmm. if you're, if things are uh, really good, it, that's going to, you know, all of the emotions are going to come up and there's this container of the meditation to explore them. And, and that's why I think meditation is so great. It's not because it makes you feel relaxed. It can do that sometimes, but it can also, like, I've cried my way through meditation sessions more times than I can count. Yeah. Um, but it's James, a- I, I had a <laughs> super intense experience last week yeah. of just like sobbing in, on the retreat, on the last day of the mm-hmm. retreat, um, yeah. just because of mm-hmm. some stuff that came up that was a very, it was great. I felt you know, like 20 pounds lighter at the end of it, <laughs> but man, oh man. Uh, yeah. It wasn't just like sitting there relaxing, thinking about nothing for sure. Yeah. Well, and, yeah. and you say it as you, it, it's great because it's, you can't, since you can't escape, you can't like whip out your game boy or your phone yeah. or your, you like <laughs> chocolate boy, bar or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you actually have to deal with the feelings and, and then they're gone mm-hmm. <laughs> and you're facing reality. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah. And I guess that makes sense why I feel like a lot of people are resistant because I think, especially right now with mindfulness being just like the hot new thing and headspace is installed on everyone's phones is that I think so many of us are in it for that sense of like, what am I going to get out of it? It's going to be all good things. I'm going to relax you know, I'm going to be able to to get out of work brain and get into like Saturday night brain or whatever, or, or I'm going to get rid of the tension in my muscles. And I think a lot of the modern mindfulness movement doesn't really include the full pitch of like, oh, it's also going to suck to a certain extent, <laughs> like mm-hmm. the stuff that's going to come up. Because I like the way you put it, that there's nowhere to hide. Like you can't hide from the stuff that sucks inside of you. And that's not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. But that's mm-hmm. not going to sell an app at the same time <laughs> they don't tell you that in headspace no <laughs> that would be an awesome app. you know this app will make you cry uncontrollably for 20 minutes uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> get ready <laughs> although um, people do sign up to you know go watch a dog's life or whatever that movie was oh which is basically sobbing for an hour and a half so <laughs> yeah. did anyway, you watch so. it 
No, I but I, 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 because I know that's what it's going to be, and I, I don't really need that <laughs> no, right now. I can't do that. Not, not with animals. No. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask from like a more practical a- application standpoint, if you're in a relationship and you feel moments where like triggers and in meaning just kind of benign triggers, but still triggers or buttons that keep getting pushed on, you know, a monthly basis or a weekly basis or something like that. Are there practical ways that are included within Buddhism to kind of help you move away from that or change the pattern, at least on your own end? So the f- the first step is recognizing that it's a trigger, um, having the moment between the reaction and the, or the, uh, the feeling and then the reaction and then the to reaction, the feeling. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you sort of sit with the reaction long enough to sort of spread out that, that time so that you can not have the reaction. So I'm angry. I'm not going to throw things. <laughs> um, <laughs> once you've gotten enough space between the feeling and, and your automatic reaction to see that it's automatic, then mm. you let go. Um, and, and when I, I mean, I just say to myself, let go, let go, and then let go of letting go. You know, just sort of breathe and go, okay, this, this doesn't matter. Let go. Just let go of it. Things as they are. Just and I just say that to myself over and over again until I believe it, and then mm. I can move on uh, and have a more uh, mindful reaction uh, to whatever is upsetting me. Yeah, so that's great. I'm going to ask the counterpoint to Emily's question, which is that <laughs> with my own background and doing a lot of meditation. I've been very guilty of doing a lot of spiritual bypassing. Like there have been literally entire relationships that I have spiritually bypassed my way through where it was like something came up that bothered me, that angered me. And I was just like, all right, I'm just going to sit through it. I'm just going to meditate and just try to Zen my way through this. Um, and, uh, And then unfortunately, either that would lead to it would finally get to a point where there was something that I really couldn't take. And then it would be a blow up or an explosion or something like that. Or it led to me realizing years later, like, Oh, there's been a lot of stuff that I've let slide that I really shouldn't have. And I realized I've kind of been walked all over now. Like I let, or I let myself, like I didn't have any boundaries because I kind of tried to meditate through everything. And so I'm wondering if you could also speak to that, because I think that can be the tricky thing to balance here is like on the one hand is like, all the reactivity and the attachment. And then on the other hand is kind of an unhealthy level of just trying to let go of, you know, all desires and all attachments to the point where you have no boundaries. Yeah. Um, that one is harder for me personally to work with because although I am female bodied, I am, uh, was raised as, and have always been a very assertive person. Um, oftentimes very assertive. And so I have, I, I had to work at it from the, the sort of first side of things of, you know, backing away from pushing my agenda. Um, but I think it's a really important point because especially for female bodied people uh, who grow up in a culture being trained to defer and deflect and uh, take on themselves. And I think in that case, what you should be meditating on and what, if, if you know this about yourself and if you don't, maybe looking at your relationships and seeing patterns, but if you know that about yourself, what your meditation work should be on is on your boundaries. It should mm. be on letting go of the need to defer 
Hmm. the need to submit, the need to give in. Because letting go in Zen is a really radical letting go. It's letting go of everything, including patterns that have protected you up to this point. Mm. Um, we, I like that. We do things because they reward us in some way. Even if the reward doesn't seem to balance out the negative aspects, like for me, it's food. You know, I don't want to weigh as much as I do, but I really like eating because it soothes me. And I'm, you know, still struggling to uh, deal with the emotions rather than default to eating the chocolate. Mm. And because eating the chocolate is so much easier and it's instantly <laughs> rewarding. Um, and, you know, backing out of an argument and telling the other person, you know, okay, that's fine, whatever you want. That's an instant hit of gratification. Mm. You know, you, you feel like a good person and you make the other person happy. So the argument goes away. But as you say, you're spiritually bypassing. And so you need to let go of that pattern. Um, and I, I wish I could give you an easy way to get to the point where you recognize that you're spiritually bypassing so you could then work on letting go, but that's really tricky. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I know that's interesting that you point out it being kind of this little hit of gratification because it seems counterintuitive to say that. But I, when I think back to the times that I would do this, it makes total sense that it's like, well, it doesn't feel great necessarily to give in or to just give someone what they want or to try to be the bigger person in a situation. But it does mean that like the rest of my night at home tonight is going to be peaceful, you know, and so that feels good. And it does mean that we're going to be able to go on our date tonight and it's going to feel peaceful. And so that feels good, even if it's like the rest of the time it feels crappy, um, which I think is really interesting. I have found that what I've noticed in some of my past relationships that were not great. And also with some of the clients that I work with, I think the thing that I tend to recommend people cue themselves into is that like, if the only way that your relationship is functioning is for, <laughs> this is ironic because this is what I actually say, is if the only way that your relationship is functioning is for one of you to have to turn into like a Buddhist nun or a monk, like, and like just be chill all the time, like that's not a real relationship. <laughs> You know, and so I don't know, maybe it's kind of like if someone can notice that it's this constant pattern of like, I always have to defer, or I always have mm -hmm. to end up sitting my way through it or something like that. But sometimes by the time you've gotten to that point, things are pretty bad. Yeah. And I think that, and again, I don't want to suggest, I don't want to make it sound like the only way this works is if you have a meditation practice right. and meditate every day for years. But if you sit, you know, for a, a, a period of time with this question of what makes my relationship work. Perhaps mm. what comes up will tell you what you're clinging to. Mm. And it might be the relationship itself. I mean, it's entirely possible that this relationship should have ended and it just hasn't because you're in love with the idea of the relationship rather than the relationship as it is. Um, that's a possibility. But if you, as you say, if you, are sitting there thinking, you know, well, I always have to be the bigger person. I always have to give in. Um, uh, this is my, luckily I'm so spiritually advanced that I can mm. do this. Like, that's a sign that there is a problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. 
For a long time now, we've been fans of adamandeve.com for getting sex toys or lingerie or accessories, things like that. It's just a fantastic resource with a huge selection. And now, not only do we have a fantastic offer, but we also have a promo code that will work on adammail.com and evestoys.com, which are their sites specifically for LGBTQ audiences. And our code is fantastic. It's 50% off of almost any item in the store and free discreet shipping when you use our code MULTI. Yes, we love adamandeve.com and have for years. They are our oldest and longest sponsor, and they just keep on giving great gifts to us and to our listeners. You can bring more pleasure and satisfaction into your bedroom by going to adamandeve.com, adammail.com, or evestoys.com and select any one item. It can be, you know, an adventurous new toy or anything you desire, something fun, something sexy, whatever sounds good. So just enter offer code MULTI at checkout and you'll get 50% off almost any item plus free shipping. That's MULTI, M-U-L-T-I at adamandeve.com, adammail.com or evestoys.com. This is an exclusive offer that is specific to this podcast and it's better than any offer that is currently available on their site. So again, use code MULTI to get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping. Code M-U-L-T-I. Yeah, I so... I wanted to go back for a second to, um, I guess, related to your answer to Emily's question about like how to, um, I guess I like to think of it kind of like how to have that like circuit breaker in there between when the the power surge comes in from someone doing something that, that annoys you or that frustrates you or whatever to that little circuit breaker in between that. And then me electrocuting you there. I made that, I made that metaphor work, you know, oh kind of made it happen. That was good. Um, because this is, this is something that, uh, you know, we, we talk a lot, like I talk about that a lot on this show. And I think about this a lot in my own life of how over time I've gotten better at, finding that space, that very tiny little space that happens right between something happening and me responding to it, one, or the thing that happens between me having a thought and then me saying mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. or doing something is that that little tiny moment that has felt like over the years has become bigger and I'm able to have more thoughts during that moment before my reactions. Uh, and that has been really helpful for me, but something I've struggled with is finding good ways to kind of teach people or tell people how to find that moment. And I just was curious if there might be anything in Zen Buddhism kind of about that. So the yes, but the answer is dedicate yourself to uh, Zazen, to a meditation practice and do it regularly. Um, mm. That's not something you, you get around. There's no shortcut for that. Now, mm. it doesn't have to be a formal meditation practice, but it has to be something you work on regularly. I mean, I'm sure that you didn't just wake up one day and go, oh, now I'm mature and I will no longer <laughs> overreact. <laughs> right. Um, nobody, nobody gets to expand that little period. I, I like the idea of circuit breaker mm-hmm. uh, without constantly um, engaging with that moment as it comes up over and over and over again, over months and years. Right. Sorry. 
(laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's fine. I I guess like the one thing that has been told to me that I think has been helpful and that I think we've gotten better about doing actually just in the course of doing this show is just slowing down the tiniest bit in, in speaking is what I'm Mm. thinking of specifically. Like there's been a lot of stuff on this show where certain terms or, you know, turns of phrase that we use everything from saying, um, or like, or, you know, to, uh, calling women girls or saying you guys instead of you all, or something like that, little, little things like that. That's just so habitual. You don't even think about them and just trying to slow down (laughs) to slow down that moment between thinking a thing and saying a thing just enough to be able to evaluate what you're saying as you do. Hmm. Um, that it's, I have found that to be helpful, but it is just, yeah, it's like just practicing it, just having enough of a desire to practice it that you do. I think, um, part of it also is forgiving yourself when you make the mistake. Mm. because if your reaction to making the mistake or, or saying the thing you didn't want to say, or having the instant reaction is shame, then Mm. you're actually shortening the time where you can think, not lengthening it. So forgiving yourself allows you to move forward with the practice. Uh, So I think that's very important. Um, the other thing is in, in terms of, uh, sort of, uh, Buddhist psychology, um, Buddhist psychology breaks down the thought process into excruciating detail that I will not go into <laughs> here. Um, but what it does, uh, do that I think is very useful is that it sees that you have a, um, it rec- it, it describes having an interaction as First, you have a sense reaction. Then you respond to that reaction. And then you have a a sort of um, a way you engage with the world. So uh, say someone yells at you. The first thing that happens in terms of Buddhist psychology is not that you get upset. It's just that there's noise. And Mm -hmm. you have to actually label that as an upsetting thing in order to have a reaction to it. So there is a you can think maybe about the moment between where the thing is unlabeled and it's simply um a physical or if it's in your mind a mental um moment that has neither good nor bad it just is and then you you can see that your labeling of it is the problem or the the thing that leads to the reaction. Hmm. Um so you know a loud noise can be uh upsetting or it can be firecrackers and you're like yay i love firecrackers i mean i actually hate firecrackers but (laughs) that's the example i came up with we'll go with it you know so uh it you know um your labeling of ah that noise is firecrackers and i like firecrackers because they're pretty so the loud noise doesn't bother me that's the space you want to expand the space between the thing just happening without a label and your labeling of it not so much the space between the labeling and the interaction. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So I want to reiterate, though, because I think I don't want our listeners to 
for their takeaway to be like, oh, okay, if my partner yells at me, I'll just interpret it as noise. And it's like fireworks (laughs) and that's okay. Like, I think it's, you can have that space. You can have that circuit breaker as it were. And if your conclusion still is, oh, that's like, that's a boundary for me. That's not acceptable. I think that that's okay. It seems like we're more focusing on the like, putting in more space between, you know, your partner yells at you and then the knee-jerk reaction kicks in and you yell back and then we've just kind of, and we keep escalating. Is it like along those lines? Yeah, absolutely. And first of all, there are times when an instinctive automatic reaction is important. Hmm. You know, if if a rattlesnake leaps up out of the path in front of you, um, you should not be like, ah, that could be dangerous. I should, I should have, what reaction shall I have to this rattlesnake? No. Um, you know, when you put your hand on a hot stove, you don't have to think about pulling it off. It's instinctive. It's embodied. It's, it's automatic. And sometimes emotional reactions have to be that instinctive and automatic to keep us safe. Mm-hmm. It's just that our world is so complex now that many of the things that our body says, uh, this is a threat, uh, are not actually a threat or they're not the kind of threat that you need an automatic reaction to. Right. Um, so, so first of all, there's things that you have to react to automatically. And secondly, once you've had the calm uh, circuit breaker moment, you might still feel that the re- appropriate response is to yell back. Maybe mm. that is the appropriate response. I'm not saying that it never is. So something that our listeners don't know, a little bit of trivia about our guest today, is that our guest is connected to another guest that we had on the show. So Annalisa, you are are married to, correct? Mm -hmm. You're married to Dr. Alex Bove, who we had on last year um, to talk about his research with specifically about metamors and metamors, male metamors getting along with each other. And so since it seems you're in a household that deals with metamor troubles... (laughs) Um, have you found that your Zen practice in particular has brought you any kind of insight into that? Well, I think that I have, uh, used my Zen practice, uh, in a lot of ways to help with metamors and to make them feel comfortable and to, uh, smooth over any problems. And I could go on at length, but (laughs) I know we're getting a little short on time. So I will talk briefly instead, uh, about a meta practice, which is actually not uh, strictly speaking Zen, but Zen has sort of adopted it from the um, the Theravadan school. Um, meta practice, if you don't know, you can look up the details online, but it's a practice where you first for yourself and then for widening circles of people, offer them um, uh, wishes of happiness and health. And so you start with yourself, you go to someone you care about, you go to someone or a group of people that you're neutral about. And then you go to someone you have problems with. Mm. And so you wow. sit there in meditation and you say, may I, and there's different uh, formulations. The one I use is, uh, may I be happy? May I be healthy? May I be safe? May I be at peace? It's, it's usually four things. Um, and then you say, you know, you, you imagine the person in front of you and you say, may you, whoever it is, um, this is going to sound kind of woo woo, but mm-hmm. I swear to God, it's true. If you do regular meta practice for someone that you're having problems with, you will have fewer problems with them. 
Mm. And I That's know this, this is not a, a poly thing, but I had a colleague that I was about ready to like poison because <laughs> he, he was a, a horrible, entitled male jackass. He thought he was smarter than everyone. And he was also my chair. Uh, mm. And so like out of desperation, I started doing meta for him. And it took, you know, a couple months, but he took me out to lunch and apologized. Wow. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And I don't know if it's like there was some movement in the universe because yeah. uh, we're all connected or, or if it's because uh, sitting down every day and trying very hard to wish him well made my behavior towards him different. Right. But it broke the logjam of me thinking he was an entitled jackass and him acting like one. Wow. And so, yeah, if you have a metamor that is just getting on your nerves wish that they be happy and healthy and safe and at peace every day for a couple minutes. And I, I swear to you, it will help. Wow. That's amazing. So this I is something that. I know I've heard of this often called loving kindness meditation mm -hmm. as well. So just for listeners who want to Google that, who want to look more into that, there's plenty well, of that's meta. Yeah. Yeah. Meta. Yeah. Meta. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Meta, yeah. -E -T -T <laughs> meta for your metas is basically uh, what like it that. is. Meta yeah. for your metas. Yeah. That's great. But uh. it's, that is, it's definitely a kind of meditation I found in my experience that, yeah, it can be hard because it can feel woo and it's easy to feel resistant to the woo-woo and that's also something to examine as well. But um, <laughs> however, it's also a form of meditation that usually as you know, you'll find if you do Google it and research it, that it's kind of, there's this set formula, this set structure these set things that you can say that it's a, it's, um, it's kind of a, uh, I think a good form of meditation that's accessible for beginners in a sense of it's kind of like, okay, here, follow these instructions and then kind of just yes. repeat this until, you know, things soften or until you feel something mm -hmm. or, or things like that. And there are mm -hmm. some good like guided meditations. I mean, mm -hmm. there's so many guided meta meditations out there because it is such a, uh, essential thing such yeah. a, it's such yeah. a easy to understand thing and i i think sometimes beginners myself included when i was more of a beginner was very resistant to guided meditations because i felt like oh that's not like legit meditation it's not it's real um, the nuns did it with us though and it was great <laughs> yeah yeah so i think it is it can be a really helpful thing especially starting out to just give you like what am i even doing while i'm sitting here yeah. uh, can, yeah. can really help right yeah. um and meta is also just it's great for people to do for themselves how often do you wish that you would be you know at peace and yeah. healthy and happy and so it's a nice thing to do very for rarely Right. Yeah. yeah. Sad. Yeah. Definitely. Well, I mean, yeah, like from a conceptual level, just even sitting there and being like, I hope that I'm happy. I hope that I'm doing well. I hope that I'm at peace. Like, yeah, it's not something that I sit there and mindfully think about. So I really like that idea. Yeah. I don't of think doing it with yourself as well. Not often the narrative running through people's heads for themselves no. by default. At least that's my yeah. impression. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, that was yeah. my my experience during this meditation retreat of just like ending up kind of sobbing at the end of this 45 minute meditation session was that was kind of giving that sort of like love and care to a part of myself mm -hmm. that I hadn't been for 20 years or something. And that was yeah. was a pretty huge moment. So that mm -hmm. and, and it is. Yeah, it's not. That's mo usually not how my voice in my head is talking to myself. <laughs> 
It's more like, yeah. oh, you fucked up again. Like, oh, you <laughs> idiot. What are you doing? You know, like, yeah. come on, work harder, or focus better or whatever. So yeah, it's yeah. such a, such a change in the way I think most of our internal voices are. Yeah, absolutely. We're never kind to ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, or when we're Rarely. kind to ourselves, when we're kind to ourselves, I think it's usually in a sort of soothing, um, uh, delusive way. We're not really kind. We're just sort of like, you know, okay, give the baby a pacifier and shut them up. Mm. We're not really helping solve the problem. We're just covering it over. Mm. With, you know, alcohol, with food, mm. with uh, uh, distraction. Uh, we're not really honoring the feelings we have by letting them be and figuring out what's going on. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. I feel like a lot of self-care can fall into that category, that it's it's more of a like a pacifier kind of self-care rather yeah. than what maybe we actually really deeply need. Hmm, that's something to think about. For sure. There were so many things to think about in this episode. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, all right. So at the end here, we wanted to ask where our listeners can find more about you and um, maybe even some more of these resources. I don't know if you have any of those on your own site or if you'd like to point them somewhere else, but... Um, where can people go for that? Uh, well, I'm old and uh, Shakespearean and a Zen <laughs> student, so I don't have a website. I just, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, people can find me on Facebook. I'm in the Patreon group. Um, I, I post there. Uh, people can certainly email me if anyone has any questions. I'm happy to give out my email address um, uh, if you want me to do that now. It's uh, acostaldo at widener.edu. Um, and... Um, in terms of, uh, I don't know actually of a, of a really good single site for Buddhist philosophy. Hmm. Um, yeah, I should have planned ahead. (laughs) Now it's all good. (laughs) Well, also, if you come up with one, we could put it in the show. Yeah, you can definitely let us know and, and we can put it in the show notes. I mean, I definitely you know, before going on this retreat, the book that all three of us read to just kind of get this very base level primer was um, that book it's by right here. Yeah, by Noah Rasher, No Nonsense <laughs> Buddhism for Beginners, I think is great. Um, Stephen Batchelor, who is a very famous self-proclaimed Buddhist atheist, also wrote this book, Buddhism Without Beliefs, that again, I think is also pretty accessible mm-hmm. for uh, for people wanting to apply these principles and these practices without necessarily wanting to dive headlong and like convert to Buddhism and, and kind of go that whole route. And if uh, people are looking for a, a short book on Buddhism, uh, there's a book called What the Buddha Taught, mm. which is Oh, not the nuns at, talked about that. Yeah, yeah that's a it's good a one. great book. And it's not at all trying to say, like, you know, this is the way or you should convert. It's just like, here are his basic teachings. And, mm. you know, it's it's a really great starter. Nice. Yeah. Excellent. That's well, amazing. so much for us to... Uh, literally and figuratively meditate upon after this episode. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking your time to come on and kind of share your wisdom and your knowledge and your practical tools with us. We are really happy to have you. Yeah. Oh. Thank you so much, Annalisa. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun and I really love the show. So I'm thrilled to be on it. Yay. Excellent. <laughs> all right. Well, we are very interested to hear more from all of you out there. Um, what you thought of the show, what you think of Buddhism in general, if you practically apply these things in your real life. um, We would love to hear more about all of that. And the best place to share your thoughts with other listeners is on this episode's discussion thread in our private Facebook group or Discord chat. 
You can get access to these groups and join our exclusive community by going to patreon.com slash multiamory. In addition, you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can email us at info at multiamory.com. Leave us a voicemail at 678-MULTI-05. Or you can leave us a voice message on Facebook. Multiamory is created and produced by Dedeckard Winston, Jace Lindgren, and me, Emily Matlack. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio Balvanera. Our social media wizard is Will McMillan. Our production assistant is Nicole Samara. The theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Onan from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com. 